Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. We'll discuss a couple of stories out of the pizza industry as well as some finalization of Ignite Restaurant Group's bankruptcy auction. We begin with this note, however. Shop.org is approaching. It's hard to believe, but it's a little over a month away. Shop.org, hosted by the National Retail Federation, is an annual e-commerce conference for digital retail thinkers and doers. Absolutely. There's going to be a lot of interesting speakers. Scott Calloway, just to name one, who's an edgy, provocative, and bold speaker coming by way of the NYU Stern Business School. He's going to be talking about how to become successful in the digital age. A lot to learn when you go to register for a pass. Enter Focus 10 for 10% off. Or you can click on the link on our website, retailfocuspodcast.com, and it will send you to the correct place again. That's shop.org, the National Digital Retail Conference in L.A. September 25th through the 27th. Well, we begin our stories today with Shake Shack, and they're not shaking in a good way, as is clear by their traffic declines. Last week's second quarter earnings showed some sobering notes in terms of both same-store sales and traffic. Shares were already down on Shake Shack's stock over 7% year-to-date before the announcement. This company release, as one could imagine, didn't help their cause. And we cover this not necessarily for their size because, again, only double digits in terms of units or their perceived QSR or fast casual innovations. But the fact that the company was so highly touted coming into their IPO and trading within their first six months saw the company hold an over $3 billion valuation, which, if you think about it, is kind of insane for a company with just double-digit unit counts. It's unheard of for a restaurant, and it's fascinating to watch. But, Leighton, we've been bearish on Shake Shack now for well over a year and a half, and it seems as though the bearish case towards Shake Shack may be getting to see some concrete evidence as to why the chain may not have the growth trajectory a lot of people thought. You know, the theme for Shake Shack seems to be that their unit growth is keeping the financials in line with expectations. As same shack sales, as they call them, are now in the negative territory. This is something that we've been eyeing, like you said, over the past year because we've been seeing low single-digit comps from Shake Shack. And This was a little bit worrisome because in Shake Shack, you look at an up-and-comer operator in the QSR industry that was innovative, that was highly touted, and now, yes, they are meeting guidance, and we'll talk about that a little bit in a second, but overall, you're seeing that they are not able to keep those traffic levels up, and really, the interest has waned for Shake Shack, and that is a little bit worrisome. If you're an executive at the company right now, the company did report revenues of $91.32 million, topping the 89.5 that was expected by analysts. This is representative of around 37% revenue growth year over year. Shake Shack was also profitable as they reported net income of $4.9 million and adjusted earnings per share of just 20 cents versus expectations of 16 cents. But net income of $3.3 million last year during their second quarter is indicative of a company that is at least growing their bottom line. Same Shack sales were down a surprising 1.8% versus company expectations and analyst expectations. 
Both the company and the analysts were expecting between neutral and low single digits. Some analysts were expecting around 2% comps, while others were saying close to neutral. But you're saying that the company has renewed guidance for those same store sales or same shack sales, now guiding between negative 2 and negative 3% for the full fiscal year, which in our view is now reasonable. And we'll talk a little bit more about the renewed guidance for the rest of the company's metrics here in a second. But we must keep it in perspective that only some of the company's portfolio was available for comps, company-owned stores that were opened at least one year. So they're coming from a small base of 37 shacks, and they opened four company-owned locations and three licensed locations in the quarter. 24 more company-owned Shake Shacks over last year's second quarter. But you see the majority of those obviously did not contribute to those same shack sales as they were not opened a full year. Shake Shack level operating margins decreased roughly 200 basis points to 28.8% of sales, which is worrisome. They cited labor increases and other expenses, which they did not disclose. But Trent, there was a lot of interesting information during the conference call. And if you read the transcript, management's eyeing the same overall goals for the company that they've been eyeing for several quarters now. They began by citing that they see Shake Shacks as local meeting spots that deliver unparalleled customer service. And we look at that statement alone and see that the company really is trying to have some of the differentiators, the key differentiators that a lot of QSRs have had for quite some time. And with this, you have to wonder if they're not on track as far as their overall vision for the company because they spoke of delivery and a lot of the digital progress they've made with their apps on the Android platform that they've rolled out here recently with their delivery options. And you have to think, is the company going to be focused on the in-house experience by having those people come in and truly treat it like a local meeting spot in your city or town? Or is it going to be something, a wave of the future where they can bring it to the customer in various ways in this digital age? And for them, customer service is about all facets of their business. They did reiterate that one of the ways they are going to be reaching more customers is their digital presence. But you just have to wonder and realize, are they going to be focused on what they need to do in order to grow their customer base as a whole? I'm not sure that Shake Shack is actually in the segment to be worried about having it being kind of a community meeting spot. You know, they're not a coffee shop. They're not a sit-down FSR type restaurant. So Shake Shack needs to more clearly define where they're going with their business. And I understand wanting to ratchet up in-house hospitality. Most QSRs that have dine-in options do want to do this. But I think the direction that the industry is going overall, as we look at the industry as a whole, you're seeing sales boosts from QSRs that are getting increasingly into the digital space. We've talked for the last year plus about Domino's and Papa John's. We'll talk about the pizza industry later on in this show, but both of those operators are seeing same-store sales increases because of digital mechanisms, not because of in-house hospitality. And for Shake Shack, this may indicate a little bit of a lack of focus and I think this lack of focus shows up in the numbers. You talk about operating margins decreasing, Leighton, and what's happening here is Shake Shack is opening more stores. Is it helping top-line revenue? Yes. But the fact that they're opening these new stores in order to meet their top-line guidance and also, of course, to expand their chain obscures the fact that they're not making as much money per restaurant as they were when they had fewer locations. And sometimes you will see 
the law of diminishing returns come into play with a QSR or a fast casual restaurant. But you know what this reminds me of is almost like a slightly more successful version of Pi 5, where Pi 5 was taking the fast casual pizza industry by storm, kept expanding, kept expanding. And suddenly same store sales began to turn south and we're seeing that trend. And what's worse is the company expects this trend to get even worse throughout the rest of the year. So this is alarming for Shake Shack. And this is not necessarily something that they addressed during the conference call, which was disappointing to us. They mentioned a lot in the digital space. We do think this will help long term. They mentioned growing use of their mobile app. They want to add features to the app, improve user experience. But the company, in terms of those poor comp sales and the poor or relatively poor bottom line showing on a per outlet basis, they blame this on stronger comps that came in last year at 4.3%. And, you know, again, this is not something that successful QSRs do. They don't blame negative comps on a really positive quarter the year before. Once again, as a comparison, you look at the really successful operators in Domino's and Papa John's, they don't come out with negative 2% same store sales and say, well, it was because we were up 13% last year. They expect constant growth year over year. Will the growth slow? Yes. But one thing they don't want to see happen is for growth to be negative. And as a note, many QSRs right now have had consecutive positive comps. And with Shake Shack being a relatively new company and a lot of these stores that they are drawing comps from open less than two years this is an alarming trend and if they had a product as appealing as what they claim to have they wouldn't already be in negative territory i think in this circumstance you're looking and seeing a chain that's getting out competed by a number of other chains that are in the same space and then they also blame weather in the northeast which again we don't like to see if you're a QSR restaurant, QSRs should be relatively insulated from weather impacts. This is not something we see QSRs talk about a lot, but Shake Shack reminded analysts that many of their locations have been in the Northeast where it's been, according to them, bad weather. To be honest with you, Layton, I think it's almost embarrassing for the company to have to blame comps on positive comps from last year and then bad weather as a QSR. Can you imagine if Dunkin' or Starbucks blamed weather as a downfall for them? I know they're largely a regional chain, but at the same time, look, if your business is that heartily impacted by weather, you've got to start doing something differently. You look at coffee shops, brands like Dunkin', for example, they don't suffer from bad weather to begin with. And if you look at a coffee shop like the likes of Starbucks, where people think about getting in, maybe hanging out for a little bit during the middle portion of the day where Shake Shack wants to position themselves in the marketplace, you know what? They're relatively insulated too. Overall, one of the more interesting facets about same store sales mentioned in the call or Shame Shack sales, as they call them, is that management told analysts to overlook their tepid domestic same store sales because of their comp growth internationally. Yet, when you look at the company's plan for growth and just their growth over the last year, they saw operated unit growth domestically in the U.S. of 37% which far outpaces their international growth as they had just total license and unit growth of 30% compared to the last year. So we can see here that the domestic stores growing much more quickly than the international stores. If their international segment is an area of strength, why aren't they pouring in money to that particular portion of their operations? 
if you can't succeed long-term in the U.S. in your Shake Shack, you might be capped in the long-term runway globally, too. They have 76 company-operated Shake Shacks in the U.S., but only a handful of globally-operated Shake Shacks. So I am less inclined to just dismiss suddenly negative comps simply because their handful of international stores are doing well. You have to think that their hopes are going to be in line with those new operating company-owned stores. You're saying that 24 new stores have occurred over the past year. 24 stores, that is, they were not able to comp. But again, those diminishing same-shack sales, you have to wonder if that's going to really lead investors into thinking those Shake Shacks are going to be helping the top line growth and the bottom line. You're seeing that they are eyeing growth in the U.S. and places where they can secure deals in real estate where they think they will have a sustained demand as well. So those are two key features when they're eyeing places in the U.S. in order to expand into new market territories. On the real estate side of this, Trent, it is smart on the acquisition part to get land, potentially own the land, not lease it. For a growing company, however, we tend to think that it's okay to lease out a lot of the real estate and to be able to look at areas more for that sustained demand portion of the equation. You're going to want to get into new markets that have those newer retail shopping centers in order to boost your brand awareness. Not a lot of people are aware of Shake Shack. And if you're going to be picky on where exactly you're going to have a development occur, that might actually hinder your long-term prospects. You're going to be looking for more densely populated areas, areas that are going to be a little bit more expensive in the short term. But again, it's all about that perceived image for Shake Shack. That said, they are looking at some new, more popular shopping centers around the U.S., but they're, again, going to be very exclusive in where they decide to develop. In our opinion, they need to be prepared to pay the extra upfront costs and chalk it up to that marketing exposure. They will be entering important new markets this calendar year. Management cited St. Louis and San Diego as two markets in particular for 2017. For 2018, they're eyeing Milwaukee, Cleveland, Charlotte, and Denver, which we think those are all very good areas, very spread out areas, especially Denver. That's always a good area for an up-and-coming franchise. And you see that with new and some existing locations, they're going to be testing out a new kitchen flow the goal of which is to have a better food experience and for future digital growth. The key here in the company mentioned this is throughput, which reminds us of Chipotle's recent initiatives with the back end of their operations. We mentioned earlier, but they are testing and learning, according to management, about the delivery services. And they said this is always going to be a tough area for a QSR that is focused on quality and ingredient freshness. And we could actually not agree more. Shake Shack is dead in line with what we think delivery has to offer in the QSR industry. Obviously, you've seen McDonald's roll out several pilot programs in Florida and actually said that they're going to be expanding throughout the rest of the year, offering delivery in more and more markets. But that is McDonald's. That is a very popular QSR that really isn't as focused on the quality and freshness that Shake Shack may be. And so I think that's going to be a little bit different for Shake Shack to try to utilize delivery in a fashion that keeps their brand equity high. You're trying to think of a, a brand that really identifies with having their customers eat a fresh, tasty meal. Again, their key differentiator is their ingredients. And so anytime you have a 15 to 20 minute car ride, it may diminish the perceived quality of that said food. The company seemed to have knowledge of this again 
And they said in order for them to be successful, they have to be agile and nimble. So it's going to take a little bit of time to try to have this successful delivery program. Overall, they might not want to rush into this because if you only have one, two or three locations per a particular metropolitan market, it may not behoove you from the expense side of things to do so. Recently, Texas Roadhouse said and alluded to the same thing on their call, shying away from delivery because they feel the key differentiator there is their food and environment. They thought that, again, that car ride to take that food, let's say a a family of five orders from Texas Roadhouse, it may be significantly cooler, the food, and Texas Roadhouse is always boasting about their rolls and the freshness of their steaks. That may be lessened after about 10 or 15 minutes or so in that delivery process. Lastly, they discussed the idea of menu innovation, which is simply taking limited time offerings and making those available on a consistent basis. And we have to criticize that move a little bit too, because here you have a lot of significant LTOs for the company in the recent past. Late spring, early summer, they had a barbecue LTO in May, which concluded, and it had the barbecue shake master burger and the chicken shack and barbecue fries. On June 1st, they launched the classic bacon cheeseburger, and they said they're going to be running that through the summer or early fall. But again, this is a move that we're critical of because limited time offerings are something that nearly every franchise now has to be accustomed to. We talk about Arby's success with it, Burger King, McDonald's, always rolling out limited time offerings, especially in the spring and summer months. Their CEO cited limited time offerings as a way to boost unit sales. But you can see that they're already becoming reliant on this type of thing a little bit more. And if you look back historically at mature companies that went into this much later in life that are now dependent on it, it could be perceived as a bit of a warning sign for a company that is not only struggling to grow, but struggling to maintain comps going forward. As we wrap up this story about Shake Shack, their full year guidance, they still see between 23 and 24 total company-owned Shake Shacks open for the full year. It's important to note that they had upped their guidance previously to this current number, so it's good that they're holding themselves still to that 23 to 24 goal. They're also increasing guidance for international license locations. They want 15 total to expand to, which is a far jump from their current number of international licensed locations. The chain sees 2017 revenue in the range of 351 to 355 million, coming up just short of Wall Street's $356.7 million estimate. Shares did fall about 4.5% after earnings, but have since rebounded to near pre-earnings levels to around $32 per share. That said, they have a market cap of $1.15 billion and a very growth-centric price-to-earnings ratio of 56. We switch gears into a brand we don't talk about much in Little Caesars as they were in the news this week with the test launch of a reserve and ready service Monday. Forbes and other analyst sites noted that the one-time automat as a rough format for these stores. A little bit about Little Caesars and their storied history. We've talked about them only once previously on the podcast. They were founded again in 1959 by Mike and Marion Illich. Mike, who passed away earlier this year, became known as one of the foremost supporters of the Detroit area and one of the largest philanthropists in the nation. They opened their first franchise in 1962. Expansion since has been exclusively through franchising, so there really isn't a question between company-owned stores and the franchise split. From 2008 to 2015, they added more net stores. 
than any other pizza chain in the United States, having been passed recently in that category by the explosive growth at Domino's and some fast casual pizza places, Mod, for example. A little known fact about the company, they are vertically integrated to an extent at least. This happened after in 1971, a purchase of a mushroom farm and subsequent creation of Blue Line Food Service Distribution. Arguably, Blue Line is a larger enterprise than Little Caesars, given their additional clientele, which includes airlines and other restaurants. So that's a fun fact about Little Caesars. And Little Caesars is rumored to have over 4,500 locations overall, with average unit volumes coming in between $460,000 and $900,000, with most estimates coming in towards the higher end, around $800,000 for their independent store model. With this new service, it's going to be a new in-store device. This particular machine is designed to assist in the reserve and ready service that has been increasingly touted by Little Caesars. And we see that the app-based program offers more optionality than the existing hot and ready model that was rolled out in 1997. And obviously, as most of our listeners know, is credited with Little Caesars' recent boom in sales and popularity and that unit growth. As we transition to the technology itself, Trent, this machine is interesting in that a lot of criticism surrounding it, but it is fairly unique in that it should be offering customers elite wait times. That's the idea. This machine is called a pizza portal and is heated as a typical pizza carryout holding oven would be if you go into any pizza QSR, fast casual sometimes even. They'll have these pizza holding ovens designed to keep the pizza warm. The pizza portal has a self-service kiosk built into the front. The kiosk is fairly small. It's about the size of an iPad or tablet. It basically looks like an engineering rack. If you've ever seen one of those, one that's designed to hold servers, only instead of servers, it has individual pizza holding trays and you can hold one pizza in each tray. Use of the pizza portal when you go into a store requires use of the Little Caesars mobile app. And right now, this pizza portal only appears to work with the reserve and ready service. Basically, if you download the app from Little Caesars, you can pay in the app for whichever pizza you order. You can customize the pizza however you would like and then submit the order. Then the company sends you either a QR code or a three-digit pin. When you walk into the store, you can go straight to the kiosk, assuming that there's not a line. You can input that pin or scan your QR code, and then the door for the holding tray, the particular holding tray that your pizza or pizzas are in, will open up and it will allow you to take that pizza. So you're not actually paying in-store, you pay through the app, and the idea there is to potentially help out in throughput. As many of us know, if you've ever been in a supermarket with self-checkouts or say a Target with self-checkouts or something of that nature, people sometimes get confused by the payment mechanisms or those mechanisms hiccup. Here it's as simple as typing in a pin or scanning in a QR code, grabbing your pizza and leaving. Now this all was created as part of a partnership between Little Caesars and Apex Supply Chain Technologies. When you look at what Apex does, they specialize in a lot of these automated dispensing systems. So something a little bit fancier than your traditional vending machine. Based on articles surrounding the rollout, the machines are in some Tucson, Arizona stores. Some media outlets said that they would be exclusive to Tucson, Arizona stores or only in those stores. But 
There were several articles that pointed out that some stores in Michigan, for example, Troy, Michigan, will be getting these machines as well. AZ Central, who, from our point of view at least, did the best job of reporting on this story initially of all the media outlets that published articles about this, said that the company in Little Caesars told them that they're looking for 100 total machines in stores by the end of the year with a full nationwide rollout in 2018. They're looking at 10 for sure in the Tucson, Arizona market and right now a handful more in Michigan. The current program then, based on this quote from the company to AZ Central, it seems like it's less of a pilot, so they're not testing it and maybe taking it out of these stores, but rather it's more of a pretest to make sure they've got the technology working before complete immersion. I think the biggest question out there is why create the pizza portal in the first place? David Scrivano, their president and CEO, said that this rollout of the pizza portal and the reserve and ready service is all about improving their customer experience. He calls the machine a game changer on par with the hot and ready service that they pioneered or helped to pioneer nationwide in the 1990s. But aside from just improving the customer experience, we also get indicators that Little Caesars is under some pressure to try and grow unit volumes. Although they are a private company, we know from several franchisees that their average unit volumes seem to be in that $800,000 neighborhood that Leighton mentioned earlier. Now, this is a vast improvement from the $450,000 unit volume average seen around 2009 and 2010 for Little Caesars, but is behind Papa John's, which currently sits at around $850,000 per unit, and Domino's, which sits at around $937,000 per unit. And those are the two fastest-growing companies in this sector. Where Domino's and Papa John's have seen growth, and they've been very clear about this, is through app-based sales. Part of this is because it offers greater customizability. Little Caesars has long used the hot and ready large pizzas to brand themselves, but that offer obviously provides little optionality to the consumer. You have just a handful of options. If you want vegetables, too bad, you're out of luck. And the thing about this program is it offers a similar price point to a Domino's two-topping medium or a Pizza Hut two-topping medium, around 6 or $7. So customers are beginning to voice the fact through their pocketbooks, basically, that they want choice. And it does appear from Little Caesar's own release in the reporting of the media surrounding Michigan that they're seeking to use their app to increase the perception of optionality for customers. Little Caesar's understandably worried about some of this competition in the QSR industry, that and the quick in-and-out concepts provided by Mod, Blaze, Pizzeria Locale, and Pi5. All of these have kind of forced Little Caesar's hand and forced innovation as we've seen price points for quick and quickly produced pizzas go down. Another reason for rolling out this machine was given in a quote from Scrivano in the initial release. He mentioned the convenience sought by the millennial demographic and this is something that he mentioned also too directly to a couple of media outlets. And this is according to Little Caesars research internally is that apparently, according to them, the millennial demographic seeks greater convenience. And I think this is where we honestly differ from a lot of the media that's out there in that. After this was mentioned, this led to a slew of these clickbait headlines reading something to the effect of Little Caesars gives millennials even less human interaction or now you have to interact with even fewer humans than most. And there's data out there that 
potentially suggest that millennials don't necessarily like a ton of human interaction. But let's be real here. What this is really doing is attempting to cut down wait times. I mean, when you're seeking human interaction, you don't go to a Little Caesars. It's not a place you go and hang out in line and strike up fascinating salon type conversations with the people around you. And it's not like other generations, boomers or anyone else, they're not striking up conversations with anyone in the line, Little Caesars. What this is really about is exactly what Scrivano mentioned. It's about convenience. It's not about being able to avoid conversation. It's about not having to stand in line at a Little Caesars. I mean, how many people would volunteer to stand in line at a Little Caesars if given a different option? Tina Orozco, Little Caesars communication director, said to a Tucson area media outlet, in fact, that they hope the convenience both attracts new customers while retaining highly involved customers by reducing these wait times. Again, not talking necessarily about human interaction, but rather reducing wait times. And one of the other facets of this that a lot of media outlets conveniently ignored is that Little Caesars is actually hiring people to serve as concierges or liaisons between customers and this machine. So the human interaction will still be there, but the company hopes that the wait times won't. Looking at some of the media headlines, you can see some possible issues that can stem from this. A lot of negative PR potentially for the company. The first thing people turn to was the possible elimination of jobs. Obviously, this is going to maybe influence jobs in the long term, but a few media outlets suggested this was a possibility. At least in that short term, the company says the machines will actually add jobs. Orozco told AZ Central that they're actually bringing aboard more employees in these markets where they're having this machine. You could think of these as similar positions to front-end employees working the self-checkouts in a grocery store. So while there is a little bit less interaction with employees, you do sometimes have to interface in order to get a transaction going. Scrivano mentioned additional back-end prep employees will need to be hired as well. And this makes sense if you think of it logically, especially if you're using ingredients outside the usual pepperoni and sausage. Those need to be cut and placed into prep bins and so forth. So a lot needs to happen for this to still take place on the back end side of things. And you see another potential issue Little Caesars will hope to avoid is a potential throughput backup from this machine. Each machine only has one redemption area. If your pizza is in there, you must wait for the person before you. And we've all probably seen how this can go terribly wrong in a self-checkout situation. However, Little Caesars has distilled this down to a three-digit pin or QR code, so there's no confusion about customers needing to tender payment and either getting confused or having the payment mechanism be out of order. There is the possibility of customers getting the wrong pizza or the pizza being placed in the wrong door, which in this case, the concierge should be theoretically able to help. That's why they're there. But we can see how this potential friction at the point in the front end could be an issue for the company. There's a lot of issues surrounding this, but this is why this isn't going to be a nationwide rollout. They're going to be testing the best practice for each location and trying to combine everything that works for these individual franchisees into one overall concept. To the retailers out there, have you ever wanted to decrease your shopping cart abandonment rate or even increase your potential shopper audience? 
Traditional big box retailers like Macy's, Home Depot, Crate and Barrel, and a score of others accomplish this by offering shoppers purchase financing options, basically a way to finance their larger purchases. But let's face it, these guys spend millions of dollars a year to offer and manage those purchase financing options to their shoppers. That's not practical for most small or growing businesses. Well, now you can offer your shoppers the same purchase financing option as the big guys without all the hassle, headache, or compliance. Gain Loans provides merchants of all sizes across many different industries these same big box financing tools without the cost or complexity. Simply download or install the Gain Loans widget on your website or post a sign in your storefront and you and your customers will start benefiting from their increased purchasing power. For more information about this program or to be a part of their pilot program as a retailer or other establishment, contact info, info at gainloans.com. That's G-A-N-E loans.com. Again, costs nothing to the retailer. And in fact, in most cases, you won't even know the customer has actually managed to go through this purchase financing option. It's a no-brainer for many retailers out there. Again, info at gainloans.com. Our third story on the Food Focus podcast keeps us in pizza, but this story flew under the radar a little bit as a slew of earnings news and ownership changes have covered up a rather bold move for Papa John's and their crust. Playing into the pizza chain's overarching strategy of providing ingredient transparency and quality to the consumer through freshness, this comes as more people are still requesting gluten-free crust despite not having a diagnosed allergy. Some medical professionals, as an aside, do argue that gluten, while naturally occurring, may impede some people's digestive processes, and Papa John's will be attempting to market to not only these people, but those with a minor form of celiac disease or gluten intolerance with a nationwide rollout of gluten-free crust. According to Mintel, gluten-free food sales grew 178% from 2013 to 2016, and the trend may actually be accelerating as more product labels showcase their gluten-free status, and we've seen even things in the cereal aisle through General Mills be labeled as gluten-free now. Papa John's and Domino's have both looked to capitalize on improved ingredients and the marketing of such initiatives as differentiators. And both chains, as we've mentioned now a couple of different times in the podcast, have grown by leaps and bounds relative to their competitors. And as we talk about this story, Layton, the gluten-free crust with Papa John's is not significant in that the company has found a gluten-free recipe that works. They actually found this quite some time ago. But the important part to the story is that they are rolling out this gluten-free crust now to all of its locations nationwide. Yeah, you talk about flying under the radar, Trent. This certainly did, and this caught our attention as this was actually at the bottom of a lot of news feeds that we get. Papa John's released an official notice on their investor relations webpage this week, and we ended up looking at that as well. They released it on Monday, August 7th, and it only hit the media outlets about a day or two later. But again, flying under the radar, not a lot of people paying attention to it. But this was big for us because we talk about the pizza QSR industry a lot. And things like this really have been introduced over the past couple of years, but not on a nationwide basis. So again, it's not really telling of a company that is looking to improve its ingredients and attract new or differentiated customers. It's something that's very interesting because it is a nationwide rollout, which means that the company in Papa John's 
is really bullish on having this on their menu. As far as we can tell, they will be the first to offer gluten-free crust to all of its U.S. locations. Domino's is very, very close. However, they actually claim to have only 20 parts per million as far as their gluten setup is concerned for their gluten-free pizza. But Papa John's is the first to announce it. This prominently and to get all of their franchisees on board. If you look at the franchisee relationship with the corporate side of things, you're seeing that Overall, they've been wanting to interact a little bit more over the past few quarters. They've talked about actually increasing the amount that franchisees will be paying in terms of the marketing part of the royalty. They want to be able to make sure that the franchisees can succeed and the corporate side of the business does as well. This is going to help shareholders in the long term, but also franchisees in the long term as well as they can hope to boost these unit sales. And this is exactly what this rollout is going to help do. Pizza Hut has a certified gluten-free crust, but you can see with Pizza Hut, a company that has struggled in the face of heightened competition within Papa John's and Domino's, they only serve their gluten-free crust in about 2,100 locations in its roughly 8,000 U.S. locations. Per Pizza Hut's website, they will actually only expand the gluten-free offering based on the level of consumer demand given in a particular zip code. Little Caesars has no gluten-free crust, which is, again, a company we just covered. They're not looking to differentiate via their ingredients. They're looking more to the customer service side, obviously. Papa John's is using ancient grains in their crust recipe, and they've been able to apparently source these at a reasonable cost so as to make it a fair price point for those that are interested in trying it out. And you see that according to the company, they are making a never frozen version. So none of these crusts are ever going to be frozen. A regular two topping pizza is going to be made available for just $9.99. This was not without trial and error on Papa John's part, however, as they had piloted the pizzas in a number of locations over the past year in large high traffic markets, covering many geographical segments in the United States in Los Angeles, St. Louis, Nashville and Houston, so they tried to cover the whole gamut there, aside from the Northeast and the Northwest. In a statement by the company, they said eating a gluten-free crust doesn't have to mean eating a bland, tasteless product. Our gluten-free product took more than two years to develop and perfect because taste and texture were key factors in the dough development. The fact that our pilot customers told us they love the taste proves that we made the right decisions. And you can see decisions is the key word here and that people want to at least have the option of gluten-free. Something that a lot of people are not considering is the idea that oftentimes groups of people come in to order a pizza or call ahead to get a pizza, not always just one or two people on a night out. So for that said, it only takes one or two of the people in the entire group to have a gluten sensitivity, as you mentioned, Trent, or to at least have that in their mind. And that could change the place where the group is thinking. And so to have that additional optionality is dead on as far as drawing in more customers, more traffic overall. You don't want to be the location that doesn't have the offering and then lose those customers. This is similar to what we discussed last year when Domino's rolled out their nationwide salads and their three options there as well. There's always that potential that one person in the group doesn't like pizza, wants to eat healthy in the form of a salad. And to be able to have that is really going to help Domino's in the long term, just as this is going to help Papa John's in the long term as well.
What is refreshing here about Papa John's is the fact that they're not resting on their laurels despite performing exceedingly well over the past couple of years. I'll put it this way. They're not blaming weather for falling same-store sales. They're evolving. They're showing high levels of reinvestment back into the company despite a massive cash flow, not just with their store operations, but also with marketing and a share repurchase program that'll make shareholders happy in the interim. And we see results from all of this borne out in their latest second quarter earnings release for the period ending June 25th. The company delivered more positive comps in North America. It was the 27th consecutive quarter of positive comps and the 29th consecutive quarter of positive international comps for Papa John's. In our opinion, the gluten-free crust will only serve to improve that. And one of the things about the gluten-free crust across the board, Domino's has it almost completely rolled out to their franchisees. Pizza Hut, they rolled out a press release about a certified gluten-free crust, and they mentioned now on their website that it's based on zip code how it's rolled out. However, in talking to Pizza Hut franchisees, it's more about just whether the individual franchisees want to roll them out or not. And in some cases, in very high demand areas, Pizza Hut doesn't have that gluten-free crust available because they leave that up to franchisees. I think it's a good idea for Papa John's to roll this out nationwide so those customers that either choose or need to eat gluten-free have that option, have that choice. If they're traveling or what have you, they know that they can rely on a Papa John's having this. The crucial thing, as we always talk about with gluten-free products, whether we're talking about a burger chain rolling out gluten-free buns or someone else rolling out a gluten-free menu, you have to make sure you educate the staff. And that comes down to the individual franchisees. Whether this program will be successful long-term, and again, we tend to think that it will, but whether it will be successful long-term relies on educating the employees for every franchisee about the risks of cross-contamination. If you have someone that's even slightly gluten intolerant, a pizza chain can be a risky place to try and sell a gluten-free crust. Domino's has a disclaimer when they sell their gluten-free crust. I'm sure Papa John's will have something that is the same. But you won't have a lot of people adopt it if you have a number of people getting indigestion after they visit. So you won't be able to build up a customer base that way. It is imperative to drive home the point to franchisees that they need to educate their employee base. We move on to our quick and final story with Landry's Incorporated looking to win their bid for Ignite Restaurant Group at a bankruptcy auction. And this was previously talked about with Ignite Restaurant Group consisting of two chains coming under a lot of financial pressure under the last few years. They have Joe's Crab Shack and Brickhouse Tavern plus Tap. This was rumored to happen in the previous months with Landry CEO Tillman Fertitta having been the owner-operator of Joe's Crab Shack from 1994 to 2006. He sold the chain back in 2006 to J.H. Whitney and & Company, and the company had an IPO under the Ignite banner in 2009, tried to capitalize and get some money off of the larger restaurant portfolio. Since 2009, you can see that the company has seemingly had a steady downfall, which has started to accelerate in the recent past with big drops in same-store sales during this past year, but the company saw Joe's Crab Shack, their same-store sales fall 14.3% and Brickhouse Tavern falling 12.6% in the first quarter of fiscal 2017. That, according to their most recent financial report, revenue dove 19.3% to $95.1 million, 
from $117.9 million compared with the same period last year. If you look a little deeper into those financials, this is in due partly because of the closing of some of these locations from around the country during the late part of last year. However, the firm has actually closed several more locations since filing bankruptcy. Around the time of this announcement, they had around 112 Joe's Crab Shacks, now only about 75. So that gives you a little glimpse into how many locations they currently operate. With 25 Brickhouse Taverns plus Taps, they have actually not closed any in the past year there. That is probably because the falling safe store sales are a little less worse than Joe's Crab Shack and that concept. The bankruptcy auction of Ignite's assets was opened up after the June 6th bankruptcy notice. And we could see reports from Reuters at first were saying that there's going to be a couple likely buyers. Landry's Incorporated of Houston and American Blue Ribbon Holdings of Nashville. But then also a potential stocking horse bid from Kelly Investment Group, which had bought the Fox and Hound here recently, Champs and Four Bailey's locations in September of 2016. Kelly Investment Group, which is owned by parent company Fun Eats and Drinks LLC, is not really a stranger to acquiring struggling companies. So we had thought, Trent, that this was probably going to be a shoe-in for Kelly Investment Group as they have the higher amount of knowledge with these types of companies, these full-service restaurants that have similar concepts and looking to turn these around to make them profitable once again. They had a $50 million stocking horse bid for the chain. The Fox and Hound, Champs, and Bailey's acquisition was actually bought for around $80 million. There were 55 locations and all there. But you can see it looks as though Landry's is going to be on top as they came in about $5 million more here during this bankruptcy auction. Looking at the financials, we found it hard to believe that someone would come in above that $50 million stocking horse bid that Kelly Investment Group put forth. But Landry's did apparently put in a $55 million bid. And in any circumstance, it's the job oftentimes of the bankruptcy court when you're looking at a bankruptcy auction to try and get the largest value for the creditors. And in this case, that's why we believe Landry's bid will win out. And that's certainly the indication that Tillman Fertitta gave to multiple media outlets. Looking at the units alone, disregarding recent financial performance, this seems like a pretty good deal. You get approximately 75 Joe's Crab Shacks and 25 Brickhouse Tavern and Tap locations. That's approximately $550,000 per unit versus the $1.45 million per unit Kelly Investment Group shilled over for the Fox and Hound and other restaurants. We should know for sure by August 17th if the bid goes through and is finalized. That's when a court hearing will take place in Houston, Texas. That will take place next Thursday. It seems as though Joe's Crab Shack is in slightly better hands. Fertitta did mention the fact that what's happened to Joe's over the last 12 years has been decidedly not good. And he mentioned that he's excited to kind of restore some luster back to Joe's and Joe's Crab Shack. He mentioned shrinking the concept down tremendously. Now, the idea behind shrinking the concept down, either in terms of closing stores or in terms of simplification of the menu, aims to make Joe's more of a true experience, almost 
tourism, if you think of it in that regard, rather than just another place to eat. In this case, fewer locations may lend to the public a perception of scarcity where that has eroded substantially for Joe's Crab Shack in the last decade. It became much more just a place to go and eat a normal meal rather than maybe a tourist destination. He acknowledges that the parent company has made adjustments and tried to evolve, but their actions have actually resulted long-term in a worse reality for the FSRs that Ignite holds. And he mentioned, Leighton, crucially to this, the fundamentals of good service. And he said he wants to make sure the hot food is hot, cold food is cold, and everyone is ensured a fun time. Really talking about the back-to-basics aspect of Joe's, but also kind of the pseudo-tourism aspect of Joe's as well. Yeah, and you look at the fun time part of the equation, this will probably be the toughest part of Joe's Crab Shack to implement as people are still tending to eat a little bit more at home, a little bit less at places that compete directly with Joe's that we've talked about in the recent past via earnings reports, Buffalo Wild Wings. Hooters is another one that has seen declining traffic over the past few years with people understanding that they can also view the big event on their big screen at home. What's the need if you can get fresh food at home, either make it at home or take it to go from one of these full service restaurants? However, the main upside we feel in the potential new ownership bid will be the fact that ownership is going to be focused on just one of these two banners, and that is Joe's Crab Shack. So if anyone can put together a plan, it is going to be for Tita as he'll be looking, as you mentioned, Trent, to downsize Joe's Crab Shack to roughly about 60 units in all. So that means about 15 more closures on top of the other ones that we've seen over the past year or so. Fertitta has also made it abundantly clear that he and his management team will look to sell the Brickhouse Tavern and tap immediately upon closing. They're going to be trying to get top dollar. However, it appears as though they're not going to be reliant on this income to help fuel future investment for Joe's Crab Shack because they said if they don't secure a deal, Independently, they'll immediately be consulting with bank officials to broker a deal. Changes in the immediate future will be centered around staffing levels at these restaurants. So you could potentially see some reinvestment, but not due to the sell-off more because of some unsecured debt. You're saying that they will not be letting any restaurant managers go. In fact, they'll actually be hiring more and potentially promoting and or transferring others to help out with operations at the store level. It seems as though Fertitta feels that they are shorthanded on the current basis and they feel like they need to reduce those wait times. And obviously this plays into customer service in any full service restaurant. The less management that you have, a little bit more complex and confusing it may be to be on the service floor. And you see, ironically, this is exactly the supposed problem for Fox and Hound that they had under the management of Last Call Guarantor LLC. Too much turnover and a disconnect in the company's desired culture was really leading towards those revenue declines and same-store sales losses. And I think the same is probably happening here. Anytime you have a publicly traded company or a company that has recently become publicly traded, obviously it's just been about eight years or so, shareholders are looking towards the bottom line and the more and more you become focused on that the less and less you become focused on what has made the company differentiate and i think for joe's that really was the service and the idea that you're coming to it as a destination not just a commodity not just like even an olive garden you can consider a commodity and that there are so many of them as joe's crab shack was getting larger and larger throughout the country 
it became more and more ubiquitous, and that made it a little less special in the long term. Ignite, however, is still trading on the over-the-counter market, so if you want to get a little piece of a penny stock, you can at around $0.10 cents per share. They represent just a $1.44 million market cap. $17 a share, to put it in perspective, is what they hit in May of 2012. And you're seeing that the company has steadily gone in the downward position since. But overall, you're looking to see if the company maybe will see some resurgence and some potential gains as you see a longtime owner now looking to revamp the franchise. We've now reached the final segment of the Food Focus podcast, a segment we call What We Ate, where we feature one item that's either new to the world of food or new to us in the world of food. And we begin with Layton. Well, we spoke of Arby's just once during this podcast, but I went to it to try the new Italian smoked porchetta sandwich. Its price point is around $5.50, and you can see limited time offerings is something that is really a bullish concept for the company as they are always offering some new innovation. And you can see that they even have an innovation team that tests a lot of different products, but this is something that recently came out of Arby's. It is comprised of melted provolone cheese, veggies, including lettuce, tomato, red onion, banana peppers, Italian seasonings, and red rind vinaigrette and garlic aioli on a toasted sub roll. The overall taste of the sandwich is what you would expect. It actually sounds pretty good, and it was very tasty and wholesome. However, I could probably eat two of these to fill me up. That is my one complaint. But for the $5.50 price point, you tend to think this is in line with their other limited time offerings and their normal sandwich offerings. You're saying that the total calories are also in line with what you would typically see at an Arby's. Around 690 calories, around 42 grams of fat, and around 2,100 milligrams of sodium. So overall, if you're diet conscious, something that you might want to stay away from. But I had this midday, so I felt a little bit better about it. If you were to ask me if you should try this out, I would say definitely. This is a very tasty, wholesome sandwich and something that you see a lot of time in the summertime. A lot of Subway innovations are centered around the Italian sandwiches and the Italian subs. So this is definitely something that brings a little bit of extra meat, a little bit of extra spice, and something that I highly recommend. Arby's also rolled out a Mount Italy using that same pork loin that is used on the sandwich that Leighton tried. Well, I have to preface all of this by saying that if you follow us on Twitter, you know exactly what I tried this last week. But I am not usually a fan of cheese and not usually a fan of things like queso and in fact i believe i'm pretty much lactose intolerant i don't do well with those type of products but i fought through that for everyone's benefit as i was in a market over this last week that chipotle had rolled out their queso it's kind of a provisional rollout to 350 or so stores and the store I visited happened to be in Colorado. Interesting note that this Colorado store didn't actually have chorizo, but it did have the queso. Now, the queso on the line, on the serving line, did have a little bit of a film on the top. We had mentioned that Chipotle had tried to avoid that by coming up with a concoction that maybe didn't congeal. It was slightly congealed. It had a light peach color to it. So it was somewhere in between kind of the orange goop that you get with nachos and the white queso or the queso blanco that you would get at a Moe's or some other equivalent restaurant. Now, knowing that I don't like queso 
And knowing that I don't eat a lot of lactose in general, I will say this. This queso is actually something that I would get as a side. Most of the time, I find it kind of tasteless, runny. It doesn't really add much to the meal. This queso was brilliant. It was tangy. It had a variety of flavors. The cheddar flavors really came out in it. And everyone was talking about the grittiness, but I think if you get it on a burrito or a burrito bowl, you don't notice the grittiness. The only time you notice it is really when you get chips in queso, and that's if you're looking for it. Their chips, of course, are sprayed with lime juice, and I think that actually accentuates the tangy nature of the queso. Now, I understand it's not going to be for everyone. It is a little bit chunky, so it's not the smooth, runny type of queso that you might be used to, but I enjoyed it so much. I actually ate it for breakfast the next day. Don't judge me. It was fantastic, and again, I never eat queso, so honestly, after trying it, I think even more firmly that queso will provide a boon to Chipotle's bottom line, and one of the things that I noticed while in the restaurant trying queso is that people were actually upgrading to queso instead of guacamole. Now, this creates a whole nother set of issues for Chipotle, one where maybe they might have an overstock of avocados, which are, of course, perishable in the stores. But we should keep in mind that the price of avocados has been going up steadily over the past couple of years. If Chipotle can get people to use the queso as their upsell instead of the guacamole, it could conceivably increase their margins long-term as well. Overall, I feel like queso is going to be a win for Chipotle based on what I tried. That'll do it for us on the Food Focus podcast. For Layton, I'm Trent. Check us out on Twitter at the Food Focus or at Retail Podcast. When we come back with the Retail Focus podcast on Friday, we'll have a number of retail stories of import and a great interview with Eliza Brooke of Racked and Racked.com as she discusses the marketing and appearance of lifestyle retail startup brands. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 